Okay, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we're in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Okay, we're going to read verses 33 through 56, but we will focus our attention starting in verse 45 tonight. But all of this is dealing with the crucifixion. We did the first half of the crucifixion last week, the first three hours, and then the second three hours picks up in verse 45. Matthew 27, verse 33 says, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to Him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word, and Lord, for this account of, Lord, what we know is the very foundation, Lord, the basis of our salvation, that Jesus was delivered up for our sins, Lord, according to the Scripture, that He was buried and that He was raised again, according to the Scriptures. Lord, we pray that You give to us, Lord, a greater understanding, Lord, of these truths. Lord, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would understand the depths of Your love that You have for Your people by sending Your own Son to die in our place. And also, Lord, that we might understand the grotesqueness of our own sin, seeing what it did to our precious Lord and Savior. So, Father, teach us tonight from Your Word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so as we started last week, we began this, uh, this uh, section that is giving a narrative or the accounting of the crucifixion of Christ, the events that happened. And again, Matthew's account is a uh, partial account. It's not the full account in terms of everything that Jesus said or everything that happened while He was on the cross. But if we study Matthew with Mark and Luke and John, you have a completed picture of these things, each of them emphasizing uh, what is necessary for their own argument and for their own cause, but all of them together give us a full picture of exactly what Jesus endured, what He said, what happened uh, to Him during this time on the cross. And as we mentioned last week, it's very important for us to always remember that these two great truths should be present to us when we're thinking about the cross of Christ, right? The first one being, just as we mentioned in our prayer, the grotesqueness of our own sin, right? If we ever want to have a true understanding of just how hideous, how vile, how detestable, how wicked 
our sin is and what we deserve because of our own sin, this is where we need to look. We need to look to the cross of Christ. And we learn from that the nature of our sin. We learn of the justice and the righteousness of God. Right? God did not spare His own Son when our sin was imputed to Him. This is how the righteousness of God, the justice of God, it must be exacted. Right? There must be a payment of this penalty that is against us because of our transgressions of the law. So He became the curse of the law for us. And this is what the curse of the law looks like. Look at what it did to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we should see then the nature of our own sin, how detestable it is, and this should be a very humbling thing for us. It should cause us to be poor in spirit, to be broken right over our own sinfulness and what we've done to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then also the love of God, how much love God has for His people that He would send His own Son to die on the cross for us. And this is how we know the love of God. This is love, right? Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how the love of God is manifested to us in what He did to our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're ever tempted to doubt God's love for us, which we will be as we go through this life, especially when we go through trials and tribulations, when we have our sufferings, when our circumstances in our life don't meet up to our expectations, right? And we begin to doubt and question the love of God for us. What can confirm it to us more than anything else is what God did for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. It is God's love for his people that prompted him, that motivated him, right? To send Jesus to come and die on the cross for us. As it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? He loved the world and he sent his son to come and to die for us. So with that in mind, again, let's pick up in verse 45. Verse 45 says, now, uh, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour here would be 12 o'clock, right? The crucifixion began at nine o'clock, according to our accounting. And then here, the sixth hour would be 12 o'clock or noon. And then the ninth hour would be 3 p.m., right? So Jesus was on the cross for a total of six hours from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. And here from 12 to three, there is darkness that covers the whole land, right? There is a darkness that is not common, right? This is more than just a cloud going over the sun, but this is a darkness that is clear and evident to the people that it's peculiar, it's unusual, it is a supernatural thing, phenomenon that is happening by the will of God. The sun's light, right? And again, this darkness, I think, is manifesting various things for us. One is one of the blessings of God that He gives to us is the sun, right? The light and the heat of the sun is necessary for life on this earth, and it is an evidence of God's blessing to mankind. He causes the sun to rise and to shine on both the just and the unjust. That the sun is a manifestation of the blessing of the Lord. Yet here on the cross, Christ is even deprived of these blessings, right? Showing the utter uh, sorrow, the sufferings, the contempt that he was under whenever he bore our sins on the cross. So that would be one reason or one explanation as to why there was this darkness. Secondly, darkness is an emblem of blindness. Blindness. And this darkness over the land is an emblem or a symbol of what is over the Jewish nation at this time. Because there is a judicial blindness or a judicial darkness that is over them so that they are not able to see their own Messiah. Though he's right there in their presence, though he has been with them for many years, and there's been many evidences of his kingship and who he is, yet they remain in darkness. There is a veil that covers their hearts so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. So this darkness is an emblem of what the Jewish nation is like. Also, we know that this is the hour of darkness. This is the time when the power of Satan and all of the malice of Satan and the demons and the wicked are going to be poured out upon the Son of God, right? It is the hour and the power of darkness that has come. 
So it's fitting that it be in darkness. Though it's happening during the daytime, yet typically evil deeds are done under the cover of darkness. And so there is this darkness to accompany the evil deeds as an example or as an emblem of the wickedness that is taking place. And then also, I think as well, that in this darkening of the sun, there is in the sufferings of Christ, right, an eclipsing of His glory, right? In His sufferings, in His humanity, His glory was concealed. People did not see it. Not that Jesus did not possess that glory. Just as when there is this darkness, the sun is still there. It still has its glory. It still has its light. But that light and that glory that is with the sun is eclipsed or covered for a period of time so that it is not seen. And in the same way, Christ, the whole time, right, from His incarnation until His glorification, during the days of His humiliation, the days of His flesh, did He have glory from the Father? Was He the only begotten Son of God? Did He lose all of that essential glory that belongs to Him and that is His by nature, uh, being the very Son of God, having the same divine nature as the Father? No, He lost none of that glory. Yet, to the eyes of men, it was hidden. It was concealed through His humility and through His sufferings. And the culmination of His humiliation is His death on the cross. So His glory is most covered and most hidden from the eyes of men whenever He suffers and dies there on the cross. It was hidden when He took on human flesh, and it was hidden in His life of sorrow, His life of poverty, right, His life of weakness, but it was most clearly hidden in His death on the cross. So these are the reasons then, I think, for this darkness that is covering the land. Then verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachnia, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, about the ninth hour is when Jesus makes this final cry that is here recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And the ninth hour is the time of the day when the daily sacrifice is offered in the temple. And this is why he dies at this time. All of these things have been ordained by the will of God. And all of it is coming about perfectly according to his will. Also, whenever the Passover lamb would have been put to death, would have been about the same time. So this is the time of the day the Passover lamb is put to death. The time of the day the daily evening sacrifices are made in the temple. And this is the time of the day in which the ultimate sacrifice for our sins the only sacrifice that can actually take away our sins, He dies at this time as well, showing that He is the one that we ought to look to as the Savior, as the one who can take away our sins. And He cries out at this time, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this cry is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, 1, which is a psalm that we have consulted many times during this narrative, for it is a psalm that is recording the crucifixion of Christ by way of prophecy, both His crucifixion and His resurrection. But in Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. So here, in fulfillment of this psalm, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in this, he's not accusing God. He's not sinning against God. He's not showing impatience or that he is uh, unwilling to be under the suffering that God has called him to do. There is no criticizing in any of these things. But he's saying this as one who is bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows, to confirm and to show, to give a verbal manifestation of what is happening to him in his person. Because our sin was imputed on him, and because he is carrying our sorrows and our griefs and our iniquity was placed upon him, therefore he is experiencing in his person at this time the full wrath of God against sin. And what is the wrath of God against sin? but to be forsaken by God, right? Not that God is forsaking him in an unjust way, but it is to be forsaken, to be deprived of the goodness and the grace of God in one's life. 
This is what sin leads to. It is a complete deprivation of the goodness, the kindness, the grace of God, and it is a full manifestation and a full, a, a full giving of His wrath, His hatred for sin, His justice, right, His anger against those who have transgressed His law. So when He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, He doesn't mean it that God has quit loving Him. Certainly that can never be the case because the father always loves the son and he even loves him at this moment because at this point is he still the only begotten son of God? Is he also at this point still perfectly righteous? Right? He in himself has never committed any sin at all and he's still pleasing to the father in those things. And is he being obedient at this point? Absolutely, because we know from Philippians 2, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So on the one hand, God is delighting in him in his obedience, in his righteousness, in who he is in his person as his only begotten son. But on the cross, he is experiencing in himself the full wrath of God against our sin. God is pouring out his wrath on him and therefore the goodness, the graciousness of God that was commonly experienced by him is being deprived of him. And God is treating him as if he is a sinner, punishing him as if he is a sinner. And sinners deserve to be utterly abandoned and forsaken by God, to have no goodness, no mercy, no kindness from God because of our sin. So he is here feeling the wrath of God and the hatred of God, the justice of God against sin. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 53, 10. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So there, the Lord is crushing him and putting him to grief at this point. And he is bearing in himself the wrath of God that is against our sin. And this cry of Christ should, more than anything else, right, convince us of the hideousness of sin. What the Son of God said whenever He was bearing our sin and the wrath of God against it. For the Son of God to cry out in this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This shows us just how horrible, how detestable our sin is, right? Whenever He was bearing these things. And then also the great love that He has for His people, that He would do this for us. Who is the one that is the delight of the Father, who is always in the bosom of the Father, who loves the Father, yet for Him to be forsaken by the Father, not because of anything that He had done, but because of what we had done. Right? This shows us, again, the great love that He has for us, the, uh, the way that Christ condescended in order to come to us and to help us during our time of desperate need. And this is the only way that we could be saved. The only way that we could have our sins forgiven is by Jesus going to the cross. There is no other way. If He doesn't do this, we all go to hell for all eternity. That's what we all deserve, right, because of our sin. And this is the only way that we can be delivered from that is by Jesus coming and dying on the cross for us. Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31. says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what more can God do to prove His love for us than give His own Son on our behalf? This proves it more than anything else, and it should be a great comfort for us to see what Christ did for us. Verse 47. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Here, because of the closeness of the words, Eli, Eli, some people think, and certainly he's not um, with all of his strength, he's suffering, he's in the process of dying, Right, So his words wouldn't be crystal clear maybe to them. So they think, they're confused, and think that he's crying for Elijah. Praying to Elijah, asking Elijah to come down and to save him and to deliver him. Now this compels some of them to go and give him some sour wine. Right, That he's thirsty and they go and they give him some sour wine in order to quench his thirst. And then the others are saying, let's see if Elijah will come and save him, right? He's crying out to him. Let's see. And they've already been mocking him and taunting him, saying, if you are the Christ, come down. If you're the Son of God, come down, and then we will believe in him, believe in you. And we know even the criminals, at least the one, was telling Jesus, save yourself and us, right? Deliver all of us here from the cross. And so now they're waiting to see whether Elijah will come. In John 19, 28 to 30, we have a little more detail concerning this. John 19, verse 28. says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scriptures, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when he had received the sour wine... He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here, it tells us that Jesus knows at this point that everything has been accomplished. Meaning, everything necessary for our salvation to take away our sins, he has accomplished it. He has fulfilled it. The wrath of God has been satisfied in the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. The only thing that is left is what? Is for him to die, right? He must die, but in terms of his sufferings, in terms of what he experienced on the cross, all of that has been accomplished, and now it is time for him to die. However, in order to fulfill the scriptures from Psalm 69, that they gave him sour wine, he says, I'm thirsty, so that this will be fulfilled, and that is why they go and they get him this sour wine. So even here, at the end of his life, and even though he's going through such excruciating suffering and pain, Jesus is still in control of everything that's going on. Right? Even to the point of saying, I'm thirsty, because he knows it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, and he needs to fulfill the scriptures that were written in Psalm 69. This is the mind that he has to do the will of God. And then after he has the drink, he says, it is finished. It is finished, it is complete, and then he yields up his spirit. Meaning he offers his life and then he dies at that point. Verse 50 of Matthew 27 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's what we just read from John 19. What did he cry out when he cried with a loud voice? He cried, it is finished, right? This is what he cried out. And then he yielded up his spirit to God. 
And we know from Luke 23, 46, that when he yielded up his spirit, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So from the womb until the tomb, Jesus always committed himself to his father. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he never deviated or wavered from doing the will of God. And even here, he's still committing himself to God, even in his death. He says, I yield my spirit up to you and I give it to you and I commit it into your hands. I commit my spirit and I commit my body into your hands and for you to do what you have determined to do. And this is what he does. He always submits to the will of God. And then it says that he yielded it up. Right? This is, reminds us of John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus says there that no one takes his life from him, but he offers it up freely. He has the authority to offer it up, and he has the authority to lay it down and take it up again. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. He has the authority to lay it down and take it up. And no one took his life from him. Though these wicked men were responsible, right? Though they were the actors used to do this, yet he willingly went to the cross and he suffered there according to the will of God. And when his sufferings were complete, he yielded up his spirit, right? He laid down his life for our benefit, for the sake of his sheep. Then verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now here, this is a very significant symbol and a significant thing that happens at the death of Christ. Whenever Jesus dies on the cross, whenever His death occurs, the very hour of His death, the very minute of His death, the curtain in the temple, the veil in the temple, is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we have to understand what is the temple, right? And what does it represent? What does it represent? What is the veil? What does it represent? And what is being communicated in this event of the tearing of the veil in two from top to bottom? Well, the temple is a symbol of God's presence on earth and God's dwelling with man. This is what the temple symbolizes. The true temple is in heaven where God dwells, right? It is not made with human hands. It is not of this earth, but it is the heavenly temple. The temple on earth was a symbol, a representation for the Jewish people of God's presence with them. And there in the temple, right, this was an emblem of God's dwelling place with man, that God was with them. But in that temple, there were regulations and there were limitations that were put on the people that created a separation between the people and God to teach them and to show them that men in their sinful state, that we cannot approach God on our own without a mediator and without a sacrifice for sin. And all of these things were communicated in the way that the temple was constructed and with these veils that were put up, which hindered people, kept people away from those places that more clearly symbolized the presence of God with man, right? Not that the temple could contain God, right? The temple was merely a symbol, a representation of that. But as you drew nearer to the center of the temple, to that place that was the most holy of the places, the people were prohibited from going and entering into that place, teaching and showing that the way is not opened for men to draw near and enter into the presence of God. And this is because of our sin. Sin brings a separation between God and man so that men in their sinful state cannot draw near to God. If we draw near to God in our sinful state, what will happen to us? We'll be consumed, right? We will be destroyed. Because in our natural state, we are wood, hay, stubble, dry wood, and God is a consuming fire. And if you put stubble in a consuming fire, what happens to the stubble? Right? It gets completely obliterated, right? It is consumed in that way. Isaiah chapter 59 
Isaiah 59, verse 2. Isaiah 59:2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. It is iniquities, our iniquities, that make a separation between us and God, so that we cannot be in His presence, we cannot draw near to God. Also, we remember in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, which was like a temple on earth, where Adam and Eve were to commune with God, whenever they sinned, what happened to them? In terms of their access to God, in terms of their being there in the temple or in the presence of God symbolized in the Garden of Eden. They were driven out. They were driven out, and then a cherubim was there with a flaming sword turning in every direction so that they could not enter in again. They could not draw near to God. And what is it that compelled them to leave the garden? Well, God did for what reason? Because of their sin, their disobedience, their transgression of the law of God. Now, in the temple, there was this veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. There were various courts. And as you went into these courts, the most inner court was the holiest place. And this veil was there as a barrier to keep the people and even to keep the priest from going into the most holy of places, except for the high priest. And that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And this veil is a symbol of the separation between God and man. The average man, right, the layman, could not enter into the Holy of Holies, right? He had to be represented by whom? By the high priest. The high priest representing him would go in once a year and offer gifts and sacrifices for sin because the high priest chosen from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Sinful men cannot perform these duties on their own. But there must be someone appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. And in the Old Covenant, that was the high priest that was chosen from among Aaron and his family. Now, if we go to Exodus 26, Exodus 26, verses 1 to 6, we have the law and the regulations concerning the curtains of the temple. And there were various curtains. And we have the regulations of them in Exodus 26, verses 1 to 6. It says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits, and all the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain in the outermost on the second set. You shall make fifty loops in the one curtain, and you shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. You shall make fifty clasps of gold, and join the curtains to one another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle will be a unit. And then also... Verse 31, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of Achaia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasp and shall bring the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of Ikea for the screen and overlay them with gold their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So here, this veil was made 
to separate the holy place from the holy of holies as a partition between these two. And then the Ark of the Covenant was placed within the Holy of Holies, and the mercy seat was put on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where the high priest went on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood of the animal there on top of the mercy seat. So this is the veil that was made. And here, the dimensions of it are that it would be 36 foot long, according to our measurements, and six foot wide. So this is a very large, uh, it's a big curtain, okay? It's a very, very large one. So, right, so this is not something that you could easily tear, you know, or that you could just go and do this by yourself. This is a miracle. It takes an act of God to do something uh, like this with the quickness in the way that it, that it happens. Now, if we go over to some passages in Hebrews, we'll see what this is representing and why it is significant in terms of our salvation. First, we referenced earlier Hebrews chapter 5. We all know this passage because we were there just a couple weeks ago. Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So there, the people are not allowed to offer sacrifices for their own sins but they must bring their sacrifice to the high priest, and then the high priest is appointed on behalf of men to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is the one who takes it and offers it on behalf of the people. And the high priest does this for the whole nation on the Day of Atonement. So the people are prohibited from going into this innermost sanctuary, this innermost room, they're in the temple, the Holy of Holies, and they are prohibited by this veil, which is a partition, a separator, a divider, keeping the people away from the symbolic presence of God. Then Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is talking about in terms of these symbols related to the worship of the Old Covenant. Right? And how Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying in this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed, until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. So there, these regulations of divine worship that were associated with the earthly sanctuary, so long as that veil remained, what it was teaching the people is that the sacrifice that would be given by God that will actually take away our sins, that sacrifice has not yet been made. And that is why the veil remained. But who is that sacrifice that takes away our sins? Who is the inaugurator of the new covenant? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so His death shows that the sacrifice has been made, and now the way is opened up by which men are granted access to God. That is why the veil is torn in two from top to bottom, to show the, the old is done away with, the old is no longer standing, right? It is a symbol for this present age that this has been done away with, and so long as it remains, so long as the outer tabernacle is still standing, the sacrifice has not yet been performed. But now it has been performed, therefore it is about to be done away with during the time of Reformation. And here, in terms of the Old Covenant worship, what was the first symbol to be done away with? It was the veil, right? The temple is still standing at this point. The temple doesn't fall to the ground, and the priesthood remains for a period of time, but this veil was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the first sign, first symbol to fall, which was a symbol of the separation between God and man. Then also Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 19 to 25 tells us what that veil represented and why it was torn. Therefore, brethren, Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. For since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to, minister, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there he has opened up the new and living way through His own blood, right? Through the veil. And here, what is the veil? It is His flesh. His flesh. His flesh, His body, is what Jesus offered as the sacrifice for our sins. And when His body was broken for us, then the veil was ripped, showing the way has been opened up. Right? Also, in this ripping of the veil, there is also, I think, symbolism in what we see in the Lord's Supper. Right? Because when we take the Lord's Supper, what do we do to the bread? It is, it's ripped right, or it's broken, symbolizing the brokenness of the body of Christ once for all. That His body was ripped for us in order to bring us near to God. And that His body, His flesh, is the veil by which we pass into the very presence of God. He being the high priest who brings us near to God. So all of this is showing then the standing of the veil, that there is a separation between God and man, and that the sacrifice for sin, in terms of human history, has not yet been fulfilled and brought about. Not that in the Old Covenant no one had access to God. We know that they did have access to God, but in terms of the outward forms of worship, there is this regulation and this prohibition, a separation that is manifested until the time of Reformation. And what is that time of Reformation? It's the, the life of Christ. It is the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is the time of Reformation, and that's why the veil was torn in two from top to bottom to signify that the new covenant has been inaugurated in the blood of Jesus Christ and through the offering of His body once for all. And when we see Christ as our sacrifice for sin and we have Him as our high priest over us, then we have confidence to do what? To draw near to God, right, with full assurance of faith that we can come near to God and that God is not going to consume us in His wrath and fury because in Christ, He no longer regards us as His enemies, but now we are His children. 
and we've been reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. So we are able to draw near to God, and we are called to go into the Holy of Holies. Right? Not the one on earth, but into the true one, which is where? In heaven. To the very throne of grace. To find help, to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. This is what is being manifested in the tearing of the veil into from top to bottom. Okay, then also, verse 51. It says that the earth shook and the rocks were split. The earth shook and the rocks were split. In Psalm 18, Psalm 18, verse 7, this also may have reference as well to the giving of the law at Sinai when the mountain shook, there was, it was accompanied with earthquakes. So here, the inaugurating of this new covenant, there are these manifestations in the world of what God is doing. But in Psalm 18:7, the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. That God, when he is angry, shakes the earth. And here he is shaking the earth to manifest his anger toward those who have just done this to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because though it was according to the will of God, as it came from them, it was a very evil thing. Okay, then verse 52. 52 and 53. Here's a real enigma for many people, but we can understand it. <clears throat> 52 and 53. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Here, at the death of Christ, during this earthquake, the tombs were opened. The tombs were opened because many people were buried in rocks, in caves. We know that Jesus was put in a cave and then the stone was rolled over it. So the tombs were opened when these rocks were split. And then many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. These are saints. So these are believers, right? Who had died, who died in the Lord. And now their bodies are raised to a resurrected body as a first fruits of what Christ has done. And it says coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. Now that's the important part. They were not raised. The tombs were opened at his death. But in terms of their resurrection, it wasn't until after His resurrection that they came out of the tombs. Meaning that their resurrection did not take place before His resurrection. His resurrection took place, but then along with His resurrection, there were these others who were resurrected as well. As first fruits of the general resurrection that will take place on the last days. So the first fruit or the first one, the firstborn from among the dead is who? is our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the first fruits are the saints who had fallen asleep and are raised there at the same time as Christ, who appear in Jerusalem for a period of time and go and visit people. That would have been quite the shocking, right? Quite the shocking thing there. And then when Christ returns a second time, there will be the general resurrection of all believers at that point. But these are given as a testimony that if He did this for them, then who else will He do it for? He'll do it for all of His children, right? All of us as well. That He will do it for every one of us. Though it's not necessary for Him to do this, Christ's resurrection is enough. Yet He does this to show His power and to display it to us to build up our faith. Because of the weakness of our faith, He did it here for these saints who had died. 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, 
when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep, and then after that, we will be resurrected as well. Christ the first fruits, and then we will be resurrected with Christ, those who are His at His coming. However, there was this small group of people who were resurrected at the resurrection of Christ, who came out of the tombs as a witnesses of the power of God and the power of resurrection and of what will be true of all believers on the day of Christ. Now, it doesn't say who these people are, right? Who these people are. And this would be one of the secret things, right? That belong to the Lord, right? It, certainly, it could be whoever God wants. We know that at the resurrection, if, it was, if God wanted to, it could have been Adam who was raised from the dead. It could have been Noah, right? It could have been Abraham. All of them died and were buried, and God could have raised all of them whenever He wanted. It seems more likely that it was probably believers who had died more recently, right? Because they go into the city, and those in the city, they go in there and they visit, um, they appear to many, right? Too many, which would be likely their friends, their family, those that they were acquainted with in this life. Then another question would be, what happened to them? Right? What happened to them? And that, that's a good question. <laughs> and likely, I think the best solution is that they, were, they ascended with Christ when He ascended 40 days later. So whenever Christ ascends to the Father, that they are with Him, and then they ascend with Him, and that they are there. It's, to me, it cannot be that they, they were resurrected with a mortal body. Right? It doesn't make any sense, because they are a testimony of the resurrection of Christ. Right, Christ is raised, and they are raised, and the body that Christ is raised with is not a mortal body. It's an immortal body. We know that those that were resurrected by Christ during His ministry, like Lazarus, like Jairus' daughter, like the, uh, the widow's son, they were resurrected with a mortal body. So they were subjected to death, and one day they would die again. However, that doesn't seem to fit here to me. I, I think that this is a resurrected body, and if they have an immortal resurrected body, then they need to be taken up to heaven. And that, that is what happened, is that either after a period of time here, they are taken up to heaven, or I think likely when Christ ascended, that they ascended with Him into heaven, right? And I think that is the best solution, though it doesn't say one way or the other. Okay, verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Here, the centurion, the soldiers, right, Romans, who have no part or parcel with anything that's going on, right? In terms of being bystanders, yes, they are there. They're in this part of the world. They're Roman soldiers. They're not even from this area of the world, but this is where they've been assigned in order for them to perform their duty as the soldier. And they're just doing what they've been told to do. So they have not been involved in any of these things other than the scourging and beating of Christ. And they're the ones that are appointed there to watch over Him. And they've been there seeing all of these events unfold. And they're very close to all the action. So they've witnessed the things that Jesus has said. They've seen what the people are saying. They've seen the darkness that has come over the earth. They've now experienced this earthquake that has happened when all these things are taking place. And they've heard the mocking of the Jews. And what are the Jews mocking him saying? If you are the Son of God, right? That is the basis of their mocking and ridiculing. If you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Well, when the centurion sees all of these things, what is his conclusion? He is the Son of God. Yes, everything that they said about Him in jest and in mocking, it's actually true of Him, right? That He truly is the Son of God because there's no way that all of these things that are happening, the way that He died, and all of these events that surround and accompany it, 
this is a significant event and a significant person that truly he must have been the son of God. All of these displays of power, and he concludes rightly that he was the son of God, which shows you again the darkness that was over the Jewish people. They could not see their own Messiah, their own Christ. Yet this centurion, a Gentile, a Roman, an uneducated man who had little to no knowledge of the Bible or the things of God, yet he's able to come to a better understanding of the person of Christ than his own people, right? His own countrymen. And this without a lifetime of exposure to him. Likely this is the first time he's ever even seen Jesus is this day. And yet he already has a better opinion of him and a better conclusion of who he is than the Jews who saw him perform all of these miracles, many signs and wonders throughout the course of his life. Luke 23, 47 to 48. Luke 23, 47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. So here, this centurion, he's even praising God, it says, and saying, certainly he was an innocent man. This man was innocent, and then here, surely he was the Son of God. So he has, he, um, he is not far from the kingdom of God, right? He has a right understanding of the person of Christ, who he is, and what has just taken place. Then, verse 55 and 56. Many women were looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to Him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now the first thing we have to ask here is, where are all the men? Right? Where are the men? Where are His disciples? Where are His followers? Because the men are nowhere to be found, except for John. We know from John's gospel that John was there whenever Jesus died. So John did come back, but the rest of them, they're nowhere to be found. Though they all made loud boast about their faithfulness, that they were even willing to die for him. And yet they're nowhere to be found there at his death. But the women who followed him, where are they at? They're there. They're there with Christ. And this is why, after the resurrection, who does Jesus appear to first? It is not the men, but it is the women. And this is to honor them because of their devotion to Him, and also to shame the men because of their failure, because of their lack of devotion to Christ. And so they should be commended for their faithfulness to God, for their faithfulness to God, and for what they are doing out of their love for Christ. And here it mentions uh, three of them. Though we also know that uh, Mary was there as well, right? But here, Mary Magdalene, right, who uh, was delivered from evil spirits by Jesus and was a devout follower of His, a devout follower of His and who loved Him very much. And there are some perverse people out there who try to make uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus that they had some romantic, that's all just complete garbage. Anyone who says that, uh, throw a coffee cup at them, okay? Not really, not really, but that's what ought to happen to them, okay? So they're nothing, it was love of a slave for a master, love of a, the Savior with the one that he has saved. This is why she loved him. There was nothing immoral or immodest or in any way, shape, or form, right? So there are some uh, things that try to, to depict that and that we ought to reject. Then the next one is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And from John 19.25, this Mary is also the sister of the Mary who is Jesus' mother. So this would be Jesus' aunt, right? This Mary is Jesus' aunt and also the wife of Clopas, and according to John 19.25. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this being James and John, who according to Mark 15.40, her name was Salome. So he, these are the ones that are mentioned here, and these are the women who accompanied him throughout the time of his ministry, and they would tend to his needs and uh, provide for him, um, 
do the things that are necessary so that Jesus could focus on teaching, doing good works, uh, healing people, but then they would make sure that all of his needs were provided for, and they are very faithful followers of his. And also, many of them have relationship to either Jesus or to the disciples as well, right? So that these families were believers and followers of Christ. Not only James and John, but even their mother is here when Jesus is put to death.